kicking off our series, The Seven Last Words of Jesus. And today is this, uh, like it's the first Sunday, I should say. It's not the first day, but it's the first Sunday in what is known as the season of Lent. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're not a church person, that word might be unfamiliar to you. It was actually unfamiliar to me uh, until I went to seminary because I didn't grow up in a church that celebrated Lent. But uh, Lent is the season in the church calendar where the church comes before the Lord and we just prepare our hearts for the coming death and the resurrection of Jesus we celebrate on Good Friday and at Easter. And it's actually the 40 days leading up to that. And so that started last Wednesday, March 1st. It was called Ash Wednesday. And this is the first Sunday of Lent. So the next six weeks, the 40 days of Lent, is just a time for the church and time for us, just a time of self-reflection and preparation, repentance and fasting as we prepare our hearts for Holy Week and as we prepare our hearts for Good Friday when we remember and celebrate Jesus' death and Easter Sunday when he rose. So that's what we've started uh, today. This is our first Sunday in Lent. So we're really excited about it. And I think it's cool that for the next six Sundays, we are just going to be focused on the cross. And like we mentioned, we're starting a new series today, The Seven Last Words of Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, there are seven things, statements he made. Now, I know the title of our series says, The Seven Last Words of Jesus. Um, And I was talking to somebody this week, and they were like, so what are, like, they thought it was like literally like he said one word seven different times. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's not it. It's actually really seven statements or sentences by Jesus. Uh, For some reason, we thought words sounded snappier than the seven last statements of Jesus. Maybe it doesn't. It was just a marketing choice. We're not trying to mislead you. But we're going to look at the last seven statements Jesus made when he was dying on the cross. And so, and like I said, I'm really excited that we're doing this for no other reason that I think it's cool that we're going to spend the next six weeks looking at and talking about the cross. You know, that as a church, we're going to just camp out here, talk about the cross, invest ourselves in it, and just try to drink in as much of it as we can. So I'm excited for that. So the seven last words of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but it's pretty cool when somebody, before they pass away, if we can kind of capture the last thing that they say. You know, for most of us, unfortunately, when we pass away, our last statements or words may or may not be captured. They may or not be, you know, worth remembering. But there have been people over the years, the last thing they said was pretty powerful. I was just going to read you a few of the uh, last statements a few famous people have made in their life. Beethoven, the great composer. Beethoven, though he was a great composer and musician, he was, he kind of became more deaf through the course of his life. And, but at the end of his life, the last thing he said was, um, I will hear in heaven. And that was the last thing he said, which I thought was pretty cool. And then Leonardo da Vinci, the great inventor, his last words were, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. And if you know anything about da Vinci, um, he was pretty high achieving inventor and painter. So if he feels like he didn't do a good job, I am really way behind him because he did pretty awesome work. Um, Winston Churchill, the British prime minister, you know, here was a guy, he was a war hero, he fought the Nazis. The last thing he said was, I am so bored with it all, which is kind of a weird, funny thing to say. Um, if you know anything about Churchill, he was a pretty gruff, tough guy, but he was also pretty funny. So, um, and then Bob Marley, the famous singer, his last words were, this is pretty cool, he says, money can't buy life, which is kind of a cool philosophical thing. 
Here's one of my favorites, John Polycarp, who you probably haven't heard of, is he was a disciple of John the Apostle, and he was one of the first bishops in the early church back in the second century, and he was arrested for his faith, and he was threatened with martyrdom, and he was given the choice to either renounce his faith or he was going to be martyred, and this is what he said. These are his last words. He says, 86 years have I served him, meaning Jesus. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I was like, man, what a great last statement. I mean, that is just going out in a blaze of glory. Dwight Moody, the great evangelist, his last words were, I see earth receding and heaven is opening. God is calling me. And then John Wesley, his last words on his deathbed were, best of all, God is with us. And so those are just some examples of last statements. But just to make the point that, you know, the last statement somebody made can be really powerful and revealing. Um, I remember my mom passed away a number of years ago, and uh, she died real suddenly and out of the blue. We didn't know what was coming. But I remember I talked to her on the phone a couple days before she died, and this was the last conversation I had with her. But I remember in that conversation, one of the things she told me, she just shared about her faith and her love for the Lord. And you know, she shared with me, I remember that she, her revelation, kind of the, her reality was that she really was Jesus's daughter, that God was her father. And it was such a cool thing that that was our last conversation that she shared that with me because she died just a couple of days later. But last words really can have power. And the things that Jesus says on the cross are really incredible. The statements he makes that we're going to look at are really powerful. Um, everything Jesus said was purposeful and intentional. He didn't waste words. He didn't just say things to hear himself talk. All right. He didn't just fill space. The things he says on the cross are really purposeful and powerful. Jesus said what he said, he meant it, and he said it when he mean, like kind of when he meant to say it. It was very intentional. And so we want to unpack what he said on the cross. And so I'm excited about this series. So we're going to look at the first statement today, and it comes out of the Gospel of Luke. And it's going to be from Luke 23, verses 33 through 38. It's in your bulletin, and it'll be up on the screen. But this is what Luke writes. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the, he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which, re which read, This is the king of the Jews. Okay, so let's unpack what's going on here. So the story picks up, and Jesus is on the cross. All right, his execution and his murder is underway. He's right in the thick of it. Now, what kind of led up to this was pretty amazing, and it's just so brutal what happened to Jesus. So Jesus is arrested. He's, you know, wrongly arrested. He has this trial, and it's just a total joke of a trial. I mean, if there was ever, like, an unjust trial, it was Jesus's. The witness were kind of contradicting each other. There was no hard evidence, but he gets sentenced to death anyway. And if there was ever an unjust sentence um, rendered on someone, it was Jesus. But he is sentenced to death. And so the Roman soldiers as part of his punishment, the first thing they do is they beat him up mercilessly. And then what the Romans did, uh, the Romans 
this is not a good quality, but they were really good at killing people, and they really made it count. And so they beat Jesus up, and then they whipped Jesus 39 times. Now, the way the Romans did it is don't think Indiana Jones, like that kind of makes it look cool or whatever, but the Romans, they had their whips had three strands on it, and it was this really hard leather. And what they did is they kind of interwove like metal and sharp objects. So when they whipped you, they would just rip your flesh out. And they whipped him 39 times with that. And then they put this crown of thorns on him. And again, don't think little thorns on a rose bush. The thorns are probably, this is going to be kind of hard to tell from where you are, but they're about, you know, four or five inches long. And they jam it into a skull. So Jesus is just bleeding out profusely. And then to add insult to injury, what the Romans would do, they would make you carry your cross to where they were going to kill you. You had to carry your instrument of death, so to speak. So Jesus is going through the city of Jerusalem. The crowds are cheering, or they're cheering his death. They're mocking him. And he's just out of energy. He's lost so much blood. He cannot make the journey with the cross. So they grab this guy out of the crowd to carry the cross of Christ to his execution. They get to what's called Golgotha. It's called the place of the skull. That's where they were going to crucify Jesus. So they nail him to the cross. So they spread his arms out like this. And they either drove the nails through his hands or his wrists. It doesn't matter. It would just be awful pain. They nail through his feet. And then they raise the cross up. And then they drop it in a hole. Now, according to tradition, when the cross was so heavy and the drop was so deep that, according to tradition, every joint in your body would break when the cross hit. And the way the Romans usually killed you is you would just suffocate to death slowly. So just get a picture of this. This is Jesus. He is bleeding out. And he is suffocating to death. And somehow he managed to be on that cross alive for six hours. He somehow managed to fight his way through it. So it's pretty incredible. So that's what's going on. Jesus is on the cross and he's dying for our sins. He's shedding his royal blood so that we could be forgiven. And he's dying the death we deserve. And there's a pretty big crowd there witnessing his execution. We don't know how many people, but we know, one, there are a bunch of Roman soldiers there. Number two, there are a lot of Jewish religious leaders, Pharisees, and other sects are there. Um, Some of Jesus' followers are there, but it's pretty much mostly the women. All the male followers of Jesus and the disciples, they were all a bunch of chickens, and they hid. And we just see how brave the women were. They came. And then there were some other just detractors and non-believers in Jesus. And the thing that's amazing is most of the people who were there for his execution are loving it. They are loving his execution. They are celebrating the fact that this guy is being murdered and crucified. And it's a really bizarre kind of savage scene. Most of the people there are celebrating and reveling in the fact that this man is being murdered. You know, it talks about how the soldiers mocked him, the religious leaders mocked him, people were just taunting him. But they are loving the pain and the agony that Jesus is enduring. And they love the fact they think this proves that he's not who he said he was. And so what I want you to get kind of a bigger picture of, though, is this. They are committing this horrible sin, and they have no idea really what they're doing. All right, they are committing this horrible crime, and they're all unaware of what's really going on. And what I mean is, here's this group of people celebrating and reveling in the fact that this guy's being murdered, and they have no concept, no idea, no awareness that they are murdering the Son of God. They are totally clueless about what they're actually doing. And so it's just shocking to me to be like, wow, here they are throwing this party, having a blast, 
And they have no idea that they're killing the creator of the world. They're killing the God who knit them together in their mother's womb. And they're murdering their savior. They have no idea what's going on. And in the midst of that, Jesus is on the cross and he makes this unreal statement. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. That's an incredible statement, and we got to really get what's going on here. Jesus is asking for forgiveness for the people who are killing him while they're killing him. Think about that. He is asking for forgiveness to the people who are murdering him while they're right in the middle of doing it. That's incredible to me. And just to give you a little kind of New Testament Greek knowledge, the way this is written in the original language is called the imperfect tense, which probably means nothing. It doesn't really mean anything to me, and I took it. I can just tell you this. Jesus said this statement over and over again while he was on the cross. That's what it means when it's in the imperfect tense. So he prayed constantly for the people who were killing him. He kept saying over and over, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's incredible to me that Jesus prayed this prayer. If he had prayed it once, that's amazing. But he prayed it repeatedly for those people killing him. And so it's just amazing. It speaks to the power and the beauty of God's forgiveness. The fact that God can forgive. He can forgive the people killing him while they're killing him. That's amazing to me. But when we step back from this, I just kind of want you to see the big picture, all right? We have these people killing Jesus. They have no idea the evil they're committing. They're, they're so unaware of the awful thing they're doing. And Jesus is right there wanting to forgive them and waiting to forgive them. So that's really the scene of what we see here. Um, and so when I first read this story, I just admit, I think, man, this is so awful and this is so brutal and savage. I mean, this is really just, you know, the worst side of humanity, if you ask me, or one of them, I should say. But at a second read, I kind of feel this way. And I look at this story and I think, wow, this story is totally about me. This story is totally about me. I mean, this is Haynes Martin through and through. And I just mean this. This story, I think, is a perfect picture of who I was before the Lord saved me. This is a story, an exact replication of who I was spiritually before I surrendered to Jesus and his grace saved me. And the truth of the matter is this story, if you're in this room and you're a Christian, this story is you. It's us. That we were people who were living in sin, totally separated from God, totally unaware of the evil we were committing, the sin we were committing against the Lord. And Jesus, our entire life was right there wanting and waiting to forgive us. And so I look at the story, and again, I think, man, this is so brutal and so barbaric. And I stop, and I'm like, nope, this is me. Or at least this was me, and this was you. And so I say all that to say this. Here's what we want to do today. In light of this story, given that this is the beginning of Lent, where we want to focus on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus as we prepare our hearts what we want to do today is, and again, I don't know if this is even technically what I'm going to sharing as a sermon. I think my seminary uh, preacher, teacher would say it was not. Um, but here's what we want to do. In light of this story, that this is your story and my story, 
we're just going to take a trip, this is kind of a lame phrase, but it's the best I could do, down salvation memory lane. And what I mean is we just want to recall and recount our story of how the Lord saved us. Like sometimes it's just good to remember what God has done. You know, a lot of times preachers, we preach sermons to, you know, okay, listen to what I say and go do this or hear the message and come forward. We just want to remember how the Lord saved us for no other reason that it's just good for us. And so that's what we're going to do today. In light of the fact that it's the start of Lent, again, the season about the cross and the resurrection, we just want to remember the time that when the cross of Christ, his grace and his salvation came into us and transformed us. So that's what we're going to do just for a couple minutes. So our story of salvation memory lane begins with the fact that before Jesus, we were sinners living in sin. That's who we were. You know, we were just born sinful. We were enemies and rebels against God. And we were just born that way. And we just lived in sin. We lived in sin. We had no idea what we were doing. We were just like the people in this story. We were sinful. That's how we were born. And because of our sin, we deserved punishment and death. The book of Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we deserve to die. And that's who we were. I can tell you, that's who I was. You know, I think about before I was a Christian, you know, it wasn't pretty. But Jesus went to the cross for us. See, we deserve to die. We deserve punishment. But Jesus went and took that in our place. The punishment we deserve, the death we deserve, Christ said, no, I'll do it. And so he went to the cross and shed his royal blood so that we might be saved. And it's really amazing that that's the kind of God that we have. You know, every other world religion talks about how we need to strive and reach out to God. Christianity is the only one that talks about God coming down right to where we were and saving us. It's amazing. And so we were sinners, but Jesus went to the cross. And so how it worked was, before you and I were Christian, God's grace was at work in your heart before you even knew it. Um, it's what we in Methodism would call uh, prevenient grace, that the Holy Spirit was working on your heart. He was working on my heart long before we had ever heard of God, that he was preparing us and opening us up so that we might have the chance to respond to God's grace. So God was working on you to save you from the get-go. His grace was at work in your heart, all right? He was always working on saving you and saving me. And so God's grace is at work in our hearts. And then we get to that point. And for you, it might have been a specific moment. Maybe for you, it was kind of a gradual process of surrendering to the Lord. But God's grace brought us to the point where we were like, okay, we recognized the, the reality that we were a sinner in need of a Savior. Whatever that point was for you. I remember very specifically, it was for me. I was at church when I was a kid. And I had a really cool encounter with the Lord about how sinful I was and I needed him to save me. But then I had to make the choice. You know, that God gives us this free will, and we have to choose, okay, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. And so I, through my free will, I choose to surrender to you and put my faith and trust in your work on the cross. And when we did that, God's saving grace, his justifying grace was applied to us, and it transformed us. All right, and so where we went from sinner to saint, we went from unrighteous to righteous, and we went from dead to life. And that's what God did for us in our hearts through his grace. It's amazing that God saves sinners like you and me. 
And after God saved us, his grace has continued to work in our hearts to make us more like Jesus. We call that sanctifying grace, just making us holy, making us more like Jesus. And this is what God did for you and me, and this is what he is doing for you and me. And he did all this because God is so crazy in love with you, you couldn't even understand it. Paul says in Romans that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think some people talk about the cross as a picture of God's hatred of sin. And I would say, well, the Bible tells us it's really the expression of his heart for you. I mean, God was so in love with you that he was willing to let his son be killed so that he could have you. There aren't a lot of fathers who would do that. But God did. You know, that he is so in love with you and he so likes you. This is who the Lord is. And this is what he did for us through his grace. So that's our journey of salvation. That we were sinners and needed a savior. We had no idea that we were sinners and who needed a savior. We're just like the people in Luke 23 killing Jesus. But Jesus went to the cross in your place and in my place. And that his grace has been working in your life. He was working on saving you long before you knew who he was. And then he led you to that point to make that decision for him through his justifying grace. And then his grace is continuing to work in you to make you more like Jesus. And he did it because he loves you and he wants you to know him and he wants you to make him known. And that's what God has done for you and he's done for me. And because of that, I owe God everything. I I owe him every aspect and every square inch of my life, and so do you. And so as we begin this season of Lent, we just wanted to recall that and relive that, just to remember when God's grace came to us to save us and transform us. You know, it's amazing just, we have such a small capacity, and I think it's pretty almost non-existent just to understand how amazing God is and what he's done for us. And I believe when we see him in eternity, we'll fully understand. You know, right now it's hard for us to really grasp it. But still, it's good to just recall what God has done for us. This was a spiritual practice in the Old Testament, recalling what God had done. In the Old Testament, the Israelites, for example, if you read the book of Psalms, they were always remembering and recalling what God had done for them. They were specifically, they always retold the story of Exodus of when God delivered them out of Egypt. And for the longest time, I thought that was kind of weird that they always brought that up. You know, I was like, okay, why do they keep rehashing that story? But the reason they did that is because we just need to remember what God has done for us. And that God has done the ultimate thing for us in saving us. And we just wanted to remember that today. You know, there's no next step of this sermon. There's no, okay, here's what you got to go do. Here's what we're asking of you. We just wanted to recall that. And the reason we did it was just real specific is this. In just a moment, uh, we're going to pray. I'm going to ask you all to stand up. And we're just going to take a moment as a church. I really feel like the Holy Spirit just wanted us to say thank you to Jesus for this. Just to take time to say thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving me. I didn't deserve it. I deserved death and hell. But God said I got it. So we just want to thank him today for that. And again, like I said, as we begin this season of Lent, just to open our hearts and prepare our hearts to start this way as we focus on the cross. So um, I'm going to go ahead and invite the band back up. We're going to have a closing song. And in just a second, I'm going to pray. And like I said, 
I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and we're just going to take a moment just to thank the Lord for his grace and for saving us. Um, you know, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians how when we come to church, you know, sometimes we're supposed to come and give worship. Sometimes we're supposed to serve, you know, and give different things. And sometimes we just need to come together and just say, God, thank you. Thank you for what you did for me. So I'm going to invite you all to stand up if you would. And I'm going to just pray and just a prayer of thanksgiving for what God has done. And then we're going to have a closing song and then you'll be dismissed. So let's pray. Jesus, as we begin this season of Lent, Lord, we just declare, God, you are so good and so full of grace. And Lord, we just want to say thank you, Lord, for saving us. Lord, thank you for coming and saving us, God. While we were sinners, unaware of what we were doing, your grace was at work. And Lord, that you brought us to the point where we could surrender to you by your grace. So Lord, thank you for saving us, God. Thank you for sanctifying us. And Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your sacrifice. And as we begin this season of Lent, Lord, we just open our hearts to all that you have for us as a church. But we just want to begin by saying thank you. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you, God, that you didn't give up on us, that you didn't abandon us, but that your grace was there and you saved us. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we honor you and we bless you and we thank you for this. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.